Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. Well, happy Easter Resurrection Sunday to you. And today, while we commemorate Jesus' death and his willingness to die so that we could be saved for the redemption of mankind, this day is not a funeral service. Jesus conquered death and he was resurrected. Today we celebrate his victory over death. Jesus, after he was resurrected, was seen by over 500 witnesses at the same time. And Jesus Christ then ascended into heaven. And today he's at the Father's right hand. And his word says that he's preparing a place for his children, even now. Today I'm going to be reading from uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And then I'll be reading from Psalm chapter 146, and I'm just going to be reading two verses. But let's begin our study from Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, sent into them for three Sabbaths, excuse me, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Psalm 146, 8 and 9 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. Now, does anyone in here besides me enjoy desserts? Okay. Well, listen, I do. And one of my favorite desserts is pineapple upside down cake. Now, it's called upside down cake, but I think it should really be called right side up cake. Now, why is it called upside down cake? Well, because when making one, a baker first packs fruit on the floor of the cake pan with all of the good stuff. Now, what's the good stuff? Well, the good stuff is the sweet stuff, the brown sugar and the butter, along with the fruits, your pineapple and your red maraschino cherries. They're all packed down under, under the bottom. And then if you've never made one before, you, you, what you do is you take your cake batter and you pour the cake batter on top of all the good stuff that's down on the bottom of the cake pan, and you bake it. Now, when the cake has been baked 
and it's finally cool enough, the baker turns the pan over and deposits the cake top face down on their presentation tray or their display surface, and then what happens? Well, all the good stuff that was on the bottom, the sweetness and the fruits are made visible. Think of it this way. The delicious toppings that were previously invisible on the bottom are now made visible. Now, you might be surprised to know that I have made pineapple upside-down cakes. You might not know this about me, but uh, when I have the time, I like to bake and cook. And I once made over 250 pies from scratch, crust and all, one summer. But a little history. Pineapple upside-down cakes originated in the United States in the 1920s when the Dole Pineapple Company sponsored a baking contest to determine the best new way to cook and, or to serve pineapples. They received over 2,500 entries to their contest, and the upside-down cake was the hands-down, cake-bottom-up winner. Now, you might be wondering why I'm talking about pineapple upside-down cake since today's Easter Resurrection Sunday. Well, besides the fact that upside-down cake might, makes a wonderful after-Easter dinner dessert, I like, happen to like mine with uh, whipped topping and vanilla ice cream. <laughs> there are a few things that upside-down cake can help us to recognize about the life, practices, and testimony of a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's start with the idea of the upside-down dessert being turned right-side up. Why do it? Well, you might wonder, why not just leave all the good stuff on the bottom of the pan to remain virtually invisible? Why not just, why even turn it over in the first place? Well, friends, God wants your love and your testimony and your fruits and your good works to be visible so that God will be glorified in you through your life. These good things should be made visible. First Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, if you don't know what the day of visitation is, for the Christian, the day of visitation will represent redemption. For those that reject God, it will represent a day of wrath. But by inverting the pan... And turning the cake bottom side up, the sweetness of the glaze and the syrup and all the sweet things is made visible. And friends, listen, Jesus' loving kindness is sweet and it's better than life itself. Psalm 63, 3 says, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now, maybe when the sweetness is turned up, it may also present a beautiful aroma. And when the Christian lives their lives for Christ and walks in obedience and exhibits Jesus' sweet, loving kindness, God is glorified. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. 1 Peter 2.3 describes how a Christian may taste God's graciousness. When a person is saved, they experience God's mercy and grace. And when they do, they taste God's sweet, loving kindness. The Christian's sweetness should be visible 
It should become a visible reflection of God's sweetness. Finally, when the upside-down cake is flipped, the fruit is made visible. Likewise, as the Christian leads what the world may perceive to be an upside-down existence through Jesus Christ, their fruit should be made visible in an upside-down world. Ephesians 5, 9, and 10 says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. When an upside-down cake is presented or displayed on the table, the fruit catches your eye, doesn't it? It causes you to notice and recognize what kind of cake exactly it is right away. Proverbs 20.11 reminds us that even as a child is known by his doings or his actions, whether his work be pure or whether it be made right, we will be known by, by and large by our actions. Jesus said in Matthew 7.16 and 17 that a believer would be recognized by their fruits. The verses say, you'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And Jesus said in verse 20, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Well, the upside-down cakes, fruits, usually pineapple and cherries, are visible. And the fruit visible on the top, once the bottom of the cake, allows a person to recognize right away what kind of cake it is. Think about it. A frosted cake could be any kind of cake underneath that covering of frosting. But a person looking at a pineapple upside-down cake can tell right away what it is. A concealed frosted cake has to be cut to reveal its type or kind. So what are the Christian's visible fruits? Well, they're discussed in God's Word. They're listed in Galatians 6, 22 through 23. The verses say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. What's that mean? It means you're willing to put up with a lot. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And then it goes on to say, against such there is no law. We don't display our fruits, though, to bring glory to ourselves or to inspire envy. Galatians 6.26 finishes with these words. It says, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. A believer's visible fruits should inspire others to glorify God and to live for God. Well, the envious mob that we read about that incited violence and attacked the believer Jason's house accused Paul and Silas specifically, and perhaps Christians or people of the way more broadly, as being these that have turned the world upside down. And what's the most important, most significant fact presented by Paul and Silas that the mob disputed that they had a real problem with? Well, Acts 17, 2 and 3 cites the fact that inspired the envious mob's wrath and opposition. The verse says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So today, as we gather, I affirm to you that the Savior that we serve, 
the Savior that we love, the Savior that we place our hope, belief, and trust in is Jesus, God the Son, who was crucified and died, was in the tomb three days, but then rose again from the dead and was resurrected. Friends, without Jesus' resurrection, without His conquest of death and overcoming the grave, we have no hope. Without Jesus' resurrection, we don't have the hope of eternal life or salvation. Without Jesus' victory over death, we're really just trapped in a kind of strange, enigmatic misery. Without Jesus' resurrection, we practice a vain, impotent, powerless, wasteful religion. Paul wrote about this very truth, and you can read it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Those verses say, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty, God's Word says. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he, he raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in, the fact, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men the most pitiable. Some translations say the most miserable. When Paul reasoned with the idol-worshiping Athenians, as is recorded in Acts 17, 18, what message did they preach to the heathen? Well, verse 18 tells us that Paul preached them Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul and Silas preached to the lost in Thessalonica, God's word did not return void. The message of Jesus' resurrection penetrated the hearts of many. It said a great multitude received the message. But God's word tells us that some opposed this message of life and hope. Why? Because they were evil men. Today, you rarely, if ever, hear someone described as being evil. If someone commits a heinous, unspeakable, horrific crime or violent act, you might hear someone describe the sinful crime as sick or being the work of a sick mind. You might hear a perpetrator of a horrible crime or sin described as being insane or crazy. You might hear someone call their sin a mistake. But friends, listen, a mistake is an act that someone didn't mean to commit. A mistake is an accidental occurrence, like accidentally bumping into a glass of milk at the dinner table and spilling its contents while not intending to. And while sin may bring about or be the root cause of various illnesses or sickness, listen to this, a perfectly physically healthy person in their right mind may choose to willfully sin and commit an act of evil. Friends, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 directs us to turn from or to abstain from all appearances of evil. And Romans 12.19 adjures the Christian to hate evil. The verse says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now some people today, today operate under the misguided false impression that they're being kind if they make excuses for evil or call evil good or play a part in making evil seem good. Friends, this is a lie from the enemy. 
The Christian should not participate in other people's sin, even if everyone else is doing it, even if the culture says it's okay, even if the evil being practiced is, is rationalized. The last part of 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Christian, examine yourself. Do you love evil? 2 Corinthians 13, 5-7 challenges us to inspect our fruit and our faith and to examine our hearts. The verses say, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do know evil. The accusation of the people that opposed Paul and Silas was this. It was the assertion that these men and the Christians were turning the world upside down. Now this was intended, when they said this, as an insult. It was a pejorative. It was a slander. But I submit to you to consider that the Christians, as they would soon be called, were turning an evil world upside down by doing good and for preaching the love, life, and truth of Jesus Christ. And friends, when a sinful and evil world is turned upside down, it's actually being turned right side up. In Psalm 146.9, God's Word tells us that God turns the wicked upside down. And praise God, Jesus Christ saves the wicked when they turn and believe and place their trust in Him. Thank God that the evil men, man can be saved. You see, without God's mercy and grace, none of us would be redeemed. Because apart from God, none of us really does good. Throughout my lifetime, I've heard the testimony of people leading wicked lives apart from Christ, whose lives God turned upside down in order to get their attention, that they would turn from sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ and praise God for those testimonies. When you live the virtues of Christ, when you speak the truth, And when you oppose evil, when you present the gospel, you may be opposed and hated for doing good and for being obedient to the message of Jesus Christ. Today, in addition to highlighting the message of Jesus' resurrection, I want to present just one of the many ways that the Christian and Jesus Christ's message to the world and to the church turn the world upside down or right side up, depending on your perspective. So let's look at Jesus' message of love. The upside-down Christian should love God and love others. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. In John 15, 12, Jesus instructed his children to love. The verse says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We are to show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to minister to their needs. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 reminds the child of God that they are to love others even more than themselves. The verse says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better 
than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. I use that verse when I teach my students in my class at school about the golden rule and how we should even go beyond the golden rule and love people even more and show more consideration for other people even more than we do for ourselves. Well, the early Christians demonstrated this kind of unselfish, sacrificial love. Acts 2, 44 through 46 describes the love that the Christians that comprised the early church had for each other. The verses say, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, I want to make this clear because people have been taking this verse, these verses and using them to confuse people and to bring confusion into the minds and hearts of people in our country today. Today you hear communists and Marxists and those who practice the so-called liberation theology erroneously and sinisterly try to use these verses to falsely claim that Christianity promotes communism and aligns itself with Marxist teaching. Friends, this is a lie from the enemy Satan. In communist countries, people are forced, often at the end of a gun barrel, to give up their possessions to the government. They're often tortured or imprisoned and their goods are forcibly taken and redistributed. People are forced and coerced to give and to turn over their property against their will. I had a friend that I went to school with down in Florida. His parents were um, there and owned a business when Castro took over the country. And the next day, the government put locks on their doors. The government, in essence, said, we now own your business. People living under communist regimes or autocratic dictators are being forced against their wills to live as slaves. Now, why would I say this? Well, a slave, if you think about it, cannot own their own property. A slave is property. In these countries, everything a person has belongs to the state or, as they are told, given to them by the state. Is it right and lawful then for a person to own private property? What does God's word say about this? Well, when Jesus told the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, we didn't read that. You can read that on your own. When the workers that were hired first but were paid the same as the workers that were hired later, later, when they complained to the vineyard owner, the householder, what, what did he say? Well, in Matthew 20, 15, Jesus said that it was lawful for a person to own their own property or to make decisions as to how it is used. In the first part of Matthew 20, 15, Jesus explained that the landowner in the parable said, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is it evil? It is evil for one man to take what belongs to another man. It is evil to prevent someone from owning their own property to forcibly take everything that a person owns. Friends, if a person is forced to give then they're not really giving charitably from their heart by choice or of their own volition. When this happens, a kind act of charity and generosity is not being performed. An act of coerced theft is occurring. I once had a person ask me this. 
They asked me if I could somehow force people, if I had the power to force people against their will to believe and receive Jesus Christ's free gift of salvation and convert to Christ, would I? And I answered, no. I would never attempt to force anyone to convert to Christianity against their will, even if I could. If I forced them to accept Christ, they wouldn't really be Christians. You see, a person coming to Christ, believing and confessing their sins, is a work done by God, the Holy Spirit, and the heart and mind of an individual. The Christian receives Christ of their own volition as they are called by God, the Holy Spirit, to God. Forced, compelled coercion is not true conversion. The early Christians were not forced by the state or a governing entity to share with each other and to look after each other's needs. No one made them do that. They did so because they loved God. They did so because as God called them to salvation, their hearts were transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. They truly loved each other and desired to look after the needs of one another. They did so because they obeyed Jesus' injunction to love their neighbor as they love themselves. They practiced Philippians 2, 3, and 4 love, loving others more than they love themselves. Now, when the world sees this kind of agape love, they see an evil world being turned upside down. They see the love of Christ at work in the hearts of those that claim to love Him and to know Him. 1 John four eleven through 13 says, Beloved, if God loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. The church and the Christian should extend love beyond the four walls of the church building. But listen, this is important. Our love and acts of charity should begin with our brothers and sisters that are a part of the family of God, that are a part of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity... Let us do good unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, how do those outside the church know that the Christian church is full of the genuine love of Christ? When they see those in the church love and care for each other. Jesus explained this in John 13, 35, when he said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Romans 12, 10 through 13 explains how we as Christians are to minister to the saints of God's household, our brothers and sisters in Christ. The verses say, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. And who are the saints? The saints are those blood-bought, believing Christians that comprise the household of faith, God's church. We are, are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. First John 4.21 says, And this we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Jesus really turned things upside down or right side up when he instructed his followers to not only love their brothers inside the church 
that are a part of the family of God, but to also love those outside. And who are those people? We could call them our neighbors. And then to love those that the world might normally hate, their enemies. Remember, it was the lawyer that tried to tempt or test Jesus that asked Jesus who his neighbor was. Do you remember that? He was basically asking Jesus to define neighbor for him. And what did that do? Well, that precipitated and prompted Jesus to teach the story of the Good Samaritan that we all know so well. Remember, according to Jesus, the person who acted in a kind, loving, neighborly way was the despised outlier, the rejected, the hated, the looked down upon, the outcast, the discriminated against Samaritan. Because of his hated status, the Samaritan man may have been taking a chance. We don't know. But he may have been taking a chance by putting himself at risk to minister to the wounded victim. We don't know for sure, but it might have been easy for the Samaritan to say, well, these bigoted people can't stand me. They hate my guts. Why should I try to help someone? Why should I put myself at risk for people that might consider me to be less than they are? Well, Jesus said that the man who behaved with merciful, loving kindness, the Samaritan, the person from the hated class, behaved in a neighborly way and truly loved his neighbor. Likewise, the Christian should love the lost, the non-Christian, the neighbor outside the household of faith. The Christian should minister to the hurts of their unbelieving neighbors, always using their ministry as a vehicle for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. I was very troubled during the time of the George Floyd demonstrations because I heard voices of people claiming to speak for God in the church, actually urging Christians to attend the demonstrations, and there was nothing wrong with that. But this is the key point. This is the important point. These people were urging them not to share the gospel or to talk about the love of Jesus at these protest events. Friends, not only was this counsel to would-be attendees evil and satanic, it is counterproductive to being able to bring the healing balm and the life-transforming message of the gospel to people in a time of turmoil when their hearts may be inclined toward resentment and hatred at a time when they're most in need of Christ's love, transforming love. If you take away the gospel, if you take away the good news of Jesus Christ, and you delete that from your message, if you delete that from your program, if you delete that from your event, if you delete that from your ministry, you don't have a message or a ministry. You don't have any hope or real love to offer people. Without Jesus and the gospel message, you don't present a true prospect for the genuine healthy change or healing that people need. But worst of all, without the gospel message, those perishing are lost forever without the prospect of eternal life or salvation. Jesus turned everything upside down when he instructed his followers to not only love family, friends, and neighbors, but he went beyond that. He said that we were supposed to love our enemies. He taught that if you hated someone in your heart, it was basically the same kind of sin as if you were killing them or murdering them in your heart. In Matthew 5, 43, 44, and 46, Jesus said, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that they may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Did you see what the end goal was there? To help others 
come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Romans 12, 14 repeats Jesus' injunction. The verse says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Friends, this is upside down thinking. Now you might think, what if people hate me for following Jesus? Well, Jesus addressed this problem, this painful dilemma in Luke 6, 22 and 23. It's recorded that Jesus said in what are now referred to as the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Friends, this is upside down thinking. When you place your desire in Jesus Christ, He transforms your heart and mind. But all of us have deep within us a desire for perfect justice. And sometimes when we endure hardships or persecution or we're treated unfairly, we want revenge. But Proverbs 22 says, Say not that thou I will recompense or pay back evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. Paul explained this to us as is recorded in Romans twelve nineteen that God will bring complete, perfect justice. If he doesn't bring it in this world, he will do so at the great white throne judgment and at the Bema seat in the world to come. The verse says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I remember when I was growing up, someone had cheated my dad, and I said, Dad, why don't you take that guy to court, and you could win. You'd... He said, you know what, Doug? I don't believe God's going to bless that man for what he's done, and he let it go. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. Friend, remember, God doesn't even want us to gloat or to celebrate over our enemy's downfall or destruction. Proverbs 24, 17, and 18 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Let, lest the Lord see it, and it displeases him, and he turn away his wrath from him. And you might say or think, but God, how can God just let people get away with evil? Listen, friends. Proverbs 24, 19 says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Remember today that Jesus' marvelous resurrection vouchsafes our eventual resurrection and eternal life in the presence of God a reality. Remember, if you don't have the gospel message and Jesus' sacrificial love, friends, you don't have anything. The message of the gospel changes lives. The message of the gospel brings healing to the brokenhearted. The message of Jesus' loving gospel and his gift of salvation gives eternal life to those that are perishing. The message of Christ's love and the gospel turns the world upside down or turns an evil world right side up. Christian, let your sweetness and your loving kindness be made visible. Let the fruits of the Spirit be seen in your life so that God will be glorified. 
Let him be glorified through your testimony. Let that which is good be presented and turned right side up for the world to see. Go turn the world upside down and turn an evil world right side 